either go on a course to have your thinking checked or unfortunately we're going to have to let you go. That's, that's the influence that these ideologies have on the police and I know this because I'm currently fighting uh, on behalf of a number of police officers who are in precisely that position. Today I sit down with Harry Miller, a retired police officer from Humberside. Harry was investigated by his own local force over posts he made on Twitter and ended up challenging the police in court. In a landmark ruling, the Court of Appeal said that Harry's rights to freedom of expression had been violated and his treatment could have a chilling effect on public debate. Harry is now the CEO of Faircop and the Bad Law Project. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Harry Miller, thanks for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you very much for having me. I'm hoping we can start with giving the viewers a bit of background. So back in 2018, 2019, you wrote some tweets, including some gender critical issues. Someone complained about the tweets and you got a visit from the police. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. Um, around about 2018, I suddenly became aware that um, the trans thing was, was getting quite big. And then I heard this phrase, trans women are women which made no sense to me on a philosophical level at all because trans women are clearly not women. They present as women, they act as women, they perform as women, but they are men because sex, as far as I'm concerned, is absolutely immutable uh, and your sex is defined by, uh, by your gametes and by the, the way your body is functioned toward uh, one, one set of gametes or, or the other, male or female. A, a, a woman is an adult human female. Now, being a man, of course, I've been asked many times, why would, I be, why would I get involved in something that doesn't involve me? Well, of course, it does involve me because, you know, I'm, I'm the father of daughters. Uh, I'm a husband to a wife. My mother was a woman. Uh, I've got lots of friends who are women. And what was interesting is that my wife, who is a very private person, said, until men start speaking up, people won't listen. So at that point, I thought, well, you know, I'm going to start, I'm, I'm going to start getting involved in this in this debate. After all, the government had invited us to debate. There was the uh, con government consultation uh, about around reform of the Gender Recognition Act. So we, we had a literal invitation to comment. So I began to comment and I quickly realised that we were, that, that you couldn't win an argument on Twitter or actually anywhere by using reason and logic uh, because Facts were defined as, as hate, which struck me as incredibly odd. So then I started to use sarcasm. So, you know, one, one of the things that I was in trouble for uh, was saying, um, I, I was assigned mammal at birth, but I identify as a fish. Don't misspecies me. And um, somebody complained about this tweet, along with um, a so-called limerick that I'd retweeted and one or two other bits and pieces. The police came to my, my, my place of work uh, and informed me that even though I'd not committed a crime, on the basis that somebody had been offended, um, I'd committed stage one on a five-step journey to genocide. That's what they said. They, used, they have this thing called the Allport Scale, which is, an ascent, which is an escalator, which begins at what they call antilocution, which is, which is speech negative speech, 
hate speech or what have you. It then moves up into direct discrimination. It then moves up into name calling and violence. It then moves up into murder, then it moves up into, into genocide. So the police argued that by me saying, um, I was assigned mammal at birth, but I identify as a fish, don't be species me, this was stage one on a journey which without police intervention would lead to the conditions that led to the Holocaust. They argued, they literally argued this at the High Court in front of a High Court judge. So they accused you of a, a non-crime crime? Or? Yeah, well, what, what they accused me of is this thing that nobody had ever heard of before, that, that had been around since 2014. And it was called a non-crime hate Instance. Now, the interesting thing about a non-crime hate incident, as the name would suggest, is it's not a crime. There was no suggestion in my case that I'd committed a crime. I'm an ex-police officer, so I understand that a crime has a legal definition. It is mens re plus actus reus minus a defence. In other words, the guilty mind coupled with a guilty action minus a defence. That's what it is. So there was no question at all whether or not I'd committed a crime. But the argument of Humberside Police was that I was on my way to committing a crime. And that's when they famously said, we're here to check your thinking. They wanted to check my thought processes to see if I had a latent criminal mindset that they could correct before I went on to commit um, murder and genocide. That was their that was their argument. So they record these things called non-crime hate incident. Now the interesting thing about a hate incident is that it does not require any element of hate. It said that in the guidance. You record a non-crime hate incident based on perception alone. So if somebody, either the victim, well there's a loaded word, but either the victim or any other person, including the police, perceive an action to be based in hostility toward one of the five monitored strands, gender identity being one of the five monitored strands, then it had to be recorded as a non-crime hate incident. Now, what's interesting is the language they use. Regardless of evidence of hate, I was deemed to be the suspect. The person who complained was deemed to be the victim. I was recorded on a crime report for the crime non-crime of trans hate. Now, that is as Orwellian as it gets. The idea that there can be a crime which is a non-crime or a non-crime which is a crime, that is Orwellian doublespeak. It's entirely wrong. We went through the court system. We went to the High Court and we went, then we went to the Court of Appeal and we had, we had um, Initially, the High Court declared that the actions of Humberside in relation to me were unlawful, so we won that. But the guidance itself that the police were following was deemed to be lawful. He then said, that's illogical. How can you have lawful guidance, but following the guidance, how is that, but is unlawful? That makes no sense. So we went back to the Court of Appeal and we won at the Court of Appeal. Now, what's interesting there is that the Court of Appeal said that the recording of non-crime hate incidents themselves is not illegal. But there has to be a degree of rationality attached to them. There has to be a filter. It can't simply be on perception alone. There has to be some element, and I suppose what they mean is objective element, of hatred toward 
um, toward a particular community, there's got to be something more than perception. Unfortunately for us, in spite of this massive victory, the College of Policing, who are the, um, the authors of this guidance, um, and they push it out to all 43 police forces in, in, in England and Wales, all they did, all they've done, is simply played with the terminology. So instead of having a non-crime hate incident, they've, re, they've rebranded it as an offence incident non-crime, which is in effect you know, changing the name of JAM to Strawberry Preserve and hoping that nobody notices. So now instead of having NCHIs, we have the beautifully named OINCs, offence incidents non-crime. So the police can now give you an OINC. Uh, based again, based on not based on perception this time, but based on somebody's somebody feeling disturbed by something you say. So it's the same thing. It's the same thing with different dressing. Right. Do you have any idea how common these non-crime incidents or oinks are? Yeah, six round about round about sixty-six a day. Really? There are, the police are issuing around about sixty-six a day, or, the, or they were. We've we've yet to see what the figures are going to be like um, this next this next year. Of course, when, when you see when you see when you encourage the police to see hate everywhere, guess what? They see hate everywhere. It's what their college, what the professional body has told them to do. And in fact, in the original guidance, 2014 guidance, it says this. It says a decrease, seeing a decrease in hate crime is not an appropriate target because it may discourage and demotivate police officers. Imagine that. Imagine being the police, the hate squad, the squad whose job it is to go and get rid of hate and hate crime and to put in the guidance seeing a decrease in hate crime is not an appropriate target. Imagine that. Imagine if we applied that to the murder squad, for instance, and said a decrease in murder is not appropriate or the robbery squad, a decrease in robbery is not appropriate. Like what? What they're doing is conducting a sustainable business model where they see hate everywhere in order to get more funding for hate in order to see even more hate everywhere, to get even more funding for hate, so that they can, so that they then embark on this highly sustainable business model. That's what this is all about. Hate is an industry. It's a Ponzi scheme, is what it is. They're, the, they're like the religious fanatics who see Jesus in a slice of toast. They see hate everywhere because they're conditioned to. You mentioned several times the College of Policing. Can you tell us like, what the College of Policing does and what it's supposed to do? Well, okay, so it was set up in, I think, 2012. Um, and it, it, its aim was to professionalise the police, to make the police accountable, to give guidance to the police, to be the, to be the professional overseer of the police forces in England and Wales. If you look, it, it's, it's a private company, actually. You can download its accounts from Company's House, and I would absolutely encourage anybody to do so because the accounts tell a hell of a story. I think this last year they spent something like 71, 71 million. I don't know what they do with that, but they have a staff of around about um, 650, I think, 650 odd people, and they've got a wage bill around about 40, 39, 40 million. Oh. Now, if you, if you divide the wage bill simply by the number of people who are employed, it works out at a salary of around about 50 odd, 50 some thousand uh, per person. Now you can buy two new constables for £50,000, two new constables and have a little bit spare change as well. So what they're supposed to do is not what they're doing. Now one of the things that they claim is that they want to professionalise the police. Now one of the things that a professional organisation does 
It looks at a problem, thinks of a way of solving it, puts in measures to do that, and then down the line, they then test to see if their hypothesis has worked, don't they? That's what a professional body does. Okay, so back in 2014, this whole notion of the non-crime hate incident, it was, it was a theory, it was a hypothesis. Maybe if we start recording non-crime, maybe if we, can, if we can nip that in the bud, it won't escalate, based on the Allport scale, to actual crime. So nothing wrong with, with, with it in theory. As a working hypothesis, fill your boots, have a go at it. The trouble is, they've, the, the police collected, since 2014, 2014 and 2019, 120,000 non-crime hate incidents, and that number has been escalating. They reissued their guidance in October 2020, following my High Court ruling, which, in which the, the High Court judge likened Humberside Police to the Stasi, the Cheka, and the Gestapo, based on them following the hate crime guidance and non-crime hate incidents. They re, the college reissued the guidance, and I asked them the question directly. I said, what research have you done to test the efficacy of recording non-crime hate incidents? The answer came back, we haven't done any. None at all. They hadn't done any empirical research. They hadn't done any academic research. We asked all every chief constable in the country, how successful has this, has this policy been? And the answer came back, we don't know. We don't test it. That is not the mark of a professional body. It's not. You have a hypothesis, you run it, you test it, and then you evaluate it at that point. The problem here is the police have found a whole new use for non-crime hate incidents which have nothing to do with preventing crime. Nothing. What they do, they serve as a chilling effect on free speech. And that, that is the, the, that is the end that the police love. That is what they found to be effective and useful. That with the threat of putting you, uh, giving you a police record for hate, with the threat that that record of hate can be disclosed on an enhanced DBS check, which will then limit your employment uh, possibilities, that serves as a chilling effect across the general, uh, across the public. Okay. The consequence of that is people watch their speech. People don't say things that the police don't approve of politically. And that's what this is all about. We have a de facto political police force who do not want us to express contrary opinion. They do not want us to challenge, even when the government invite us to, invites us to do so, they don't want us to challenge certain ideologies. So, if you challenge the notion of gender identity, you're a hater. Black Lives Matter, you're a hater. Um, I imagine that very soon it will be, it will be uh, eco, you know, green stuff. You'll then become a, a hater of the earth or what have you. And of course, all of this stuff, if, if the, once the police have adopted an ideology, there are no checks and balances because it doesn't, you're not dragged in front of a custody sergeant where the, where the arresting officer has got to give an account as to why you know, there's been an arrest. You don't have to justify it to the CPS in order to go ahead and charge. And you certainly don't have to just justify it in front of a magistrate, a judge, and a jury. The police are, have found a way, an effective way, of operating outside of the normal checks and balances of the judicial system. 
It's ideological policing and it's absolutely terrifying. One question a lot of people watching this will have in their minds is how do the police justify, because it's not like they've dealt with all the crimes and now they can deal with this. There's actually quite a lot of crimes happening out there. How do they justify spending so much time on non-crimes? Well, but partly because non-crimes are, are easy. If it's perception-based, if a crime is perception-based, then solving it is perception-based as well. So they can, they can get their, they can, they can increase crime and increase their solving it all at the same time. So it makes them look good. And of course, if you go at, let's say, robbery, um, theft, burglary, these are proper crimes. These are crimes that have a real devastating effect on people's, on people's lives. But the police, the way the police operate is they effectively become non-crimed. They they've effectively become, well, you know, put a crime report in, we'll give you a number, let it become an insurance problem, not a police problem. And that's why we have less than 6%, I think it is, of, um, of, of, of robberies solved. We have less than, I think, less than, uh, I think it's about three or four percent of burglaries um, solved. They're not being solved because they're not being investigated. And they're not being investigated because they have not been prioritised. What's been prioritised is political policing and ideological policing. A lot of the issues that come into the spotlight to do with the police are to do with gender and sexuality. We, have, we see the, the pride flag being hoisted outside the station, cars painted in rainbows. We even see the police taking part in the pride parade. Mm -hmm. um, back when you were a policeman, did you get told not to take part in political events when, when you went to police them? Yeah, this is how different it is. Back in the, back in the sort of um, 1990s and the early 2000s, take the Orange Parade, for instance. Okay. So the Orange Parade, particularly in, in, in Liverpool, I think it's uh, the, the, the Orange Protestants, they're a, mi they're, they're a minority, they're a minority group. Um, they passionately believe in what they do and they have their, they have their march, I think, it's in, I think it's in June. Um, and the police are told, you know, you turn up and you march, you march to make sure everything's okay, but don't even accidentally march in tune, in, in time with the drum. Don't even accidentally march in time with the drum in case it gives the impression of bias in case it gives the impression of favour. Now we're at the stage where the police literally supply the band to the likes of Pride. Literally. They're not there to police it, they're there to participate in it. That is wrong, entirely wrong. Now, we are, I understand that, that times, times move on and that the police are, you know, the people of the police and the police of the public and all that sort of stuff. So. I would rather not see the police at all at Pride, other than there to make sure that nothing kicks off. But as a compromise, what I've suggested is, okay, go, march. But don't, don't put on any symbols. Don't wear rainbow epaulets. Don't wear rainbow helmets. Go down looking smart. Go down in your best uniform and march beneath the banner that says, serving our communities without fear or favour. That way you're signalling to the pride community that you're serving them, but you're also signalling to those who are not part of the pride community that you're also serving them. People like me would be like, well, okay, I'm neutralised because they're not actually saying we're, we're, we're policing for these people. We're just saying we're serving our community. The pride community is part of the community. Of course, of, of course we're policing um, for them and serving them as we are all communities but the second they put on a badge 
The second they put, they put, they stitch colours into their epaulettes or paint a rainbow car or raise a flag above the police headquarters. Or, as they do in Leicestershire, paint their riot shields so that they say policing with pride and paint them in the trans flag colours. Then you know you've got a political police force. So what is it that caused the, the move from police being like that to police taking part in, in things like a parade? Ideological capture right. is what's happened. I think from a, from a position of guilt, because we had, we had, not very far from here actually, we had the, um, the murder of, of Stephen Lawrence. Uh, then we had an inquiry into the murder of Stephen Lawrence uh, by uh, McPherson. And one of the things McPherson identified was that there was, there was institutional systemic racism within the police. Okay. So there was a sense of guilt over that, I, I, I suppose, and a, a desire not to get it wrong with other communities. I think taking a, a generous view, I think that's probably what motivated it. Um, unfortunately, though, pressure groups who claim to be working on behalf of um, vulnerable minorities have infiltrated police forces through what's called, through these things called um, IAGs, in, so-called independent advisory groups. Now, Civitas have just done a fantastic report to show how to do, that documents how these so-called independent advisory groups are not at all independent. Not at all. You have the likes of Mermaids. You have the likes of Stonewall. You have the likes of Black Lives Matter, who are forming part of these independent, so-called independent advisory groups. And they are writing policy for the police, literally writing policy for the police. You know, I've looked at a lot of police policies around um, gender, gender identity, uh, for instance. And quite typically, it will be written by a, the author will be a chief superintendent and somebody else, not a police officer. You look at the first chapter, and it's all about how homophobia is terrible. Well, we all agree with that. It talks about McPherson. Well, we all agree with that. And then deep, deep, deep into the guidance, it will just go absolutely off-piste and start reinterpreting the law. So instead of the protected characteristic of holding a gender recognition certificate, it will talk about gender identity and that gender identity is based on a person is who they think they are. No certification involved whatsoever. You just are who you think you are. If you think you're a woman, regardless of anything, you're a woman. If you think you are Tetris gender, whatever that means, you're Tetris gender. And the guidance says the police have to respect this, have to. And that the consequence of not respecting this is an instant disciplinary. So that's, that's how it's got in. We have institutional capture by these in so-called independent advisory groups who are invited in by the police, who say, we're the experts, we'll write the guidance for you. They let them do it. That's it. Job done. It's easy to get the impression from social media that the entire police force of the country has gone completely woke and, and we're kind of lost, but do you feel there's still a, a fair portion of officers out there who want to police without fear and favour? Yeah, of course, the vast majority. That's why, you know, I, I, I'm, I have, I run two organisations. One is Fair Cop, which is set up in 2019, and the other one is the Bad Law Project, which is part of, um, which is part of the Reclaim, uh, so, you know, we've got the Reclaim Party, we've got Reclaim the Media, and we've got the Bad Law Project. Um, yeah, we call, but we call ourselves Fair Cop because we believe that cops are fair. 
um, the vast majority of cops, I've got family members who are police officers, they go to work without any of this in mind at all. They go to do the, uh, the kind of policing that you would recognise as policing and I recognise as policing, dealing with theft, burglary, domestics, you know, crashes, assaults, um, suicides, uh, murders, the, the, whole, the whole shebang, riots, blah, 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 blah. The vast majority of police officers joined up for that, that reason and the vast majority of police officers are engaged in that. However, never underestimate the influence of this small but highly significant minority of, of officers, some of whom are absolute fanatics, utter believers, but then there's a next group who've been massively influenced by them and go along with it, and that then permeates out to everybody else. So you can now no longer, if you, for instance, if you happen to be a traffic cop and you're on a night out, you know, on, 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 in, you know, on, um, with your mate in the traffic car, and um, you, you, you make some mention of, oh, I don't know, I don't, just don't know about this trans stuff, do you? I'm supposed to go on a course next week about trans, you know, I, I don't really believe that trans women are literal women. Well, your colleague, according to the current guidance, is duty-bound to report you for trans hate to the superiors. And then you're sent on a course, and you're told you either go on a course to have your thinking checked, or, unfortunately, we're going to have to let you go. That's, that's the influence that these ideologies have on the police. And I know this because I'm currently fighting uh, on behalf of a number of police officers who are in precisely that position. So they've actually lost their jobs? Well, they've lost their jobs or are in danger of, of losing their jobs or are being sent on courses to have their thinking checked. This is a form of conversion therapy. You either get in line with our political ideology or, in their thinking, you're not safe to go out in the public. So we're going to have to either give you a desk job or throw you out the force. That's, that's, what, that's what happens when this small, this small cabal of very influential ideologues who go low to the intersectionality courses, who attend as board members of Pride, who are part of the national LGBT police network, which by the way is part of the European-wide LGBT police network, which by the way takes its orders from Ursula van der Leyen and the EU and has entirely adopted uh, the notion of rainbow Europe. So we have, we have a political police force. These people are massively influential. And so most police officers learn to keep their mouth shut and just crack on with their job and say nothing. Harry Miller, thanks for joining us on British Thought Leaders. It's been a pleasure.